If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me please to the New Testament epistle of First Timothy. And you will find it on page 1846, page 1846 of the Church Bible. First Timothy chapter 2, and we're reading the first two verses, Paul's letter to Timothy. Most of you are aware that there is a brief series of letters in the New Testament called the Pastoral Epistles. They consist of First and Second Timothy and Titus. And the Apostle Paul is writing to encourage a new generation of pastors coming up. And hence they're called the pastoral epistles. And he's writing to encourage them about the essential nature of their work in life and ministry. And as we come to chapter 2, he begins, and you will see the subheading is, Instructions on Worship. And in these opening verses, he writes, I urge you then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading of his holy word. Next weekend, as most of you are aware, we will celebrate the 4th of July, Independence Day. And our tradition is that we host the 4th of July patriotic service, usually the Sunday before. And so this year, we are, of course, the Sunday before. As we reckon next Sunday, lots of folks will be out at town, some at the beach, some, of course, will be in town visiting family and friends. And we thought by hosting it this weekend, it would allow us to ease into the week leading up to the 4th as we celebrate God's faithfulness and goodness to us as individuals, families, states, and of course, as a nation. And as we begin to give thanks to God for all of his goodness and his love, of course, we look back to our independence. We look back to those first days of being able to be an independent nation. But in looking back at history, we also look forward to the future as well. And of course, we give thanks to God for his love and his grace towards us. Last year at this time, I mentioned this quote, so if this is a familiar quote to you, please be patient with me. John Adams, one of our founding fathers, of course, second president, wrote to his wife after July the 2nd, 1776, a day after the Continental Congress voted for independence. And this is what he wrote to his wife. He said, The second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epoch in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to Almighty God. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other from this time forward forevermore. And of course, Adams was right. 
at least he was right 99% of the time, but we don't celebrate the 2nd of July, of course. We celebrate the 4th. And we celebrate the 4th simply because it was a couple of days after the initial signing of the Declaration of Independence that word got out, and hence we celebrate on the 4th. For the history buffs among us, please don't email me this week. I know that not all of the delegates were there at the same time or signed together. In fact, they signed throughout the next several months, and it was well into August. uh, And beyond that, in fact, before everyone's signature was there. But of course, we do celebrate, and rightly so. And as we look back on history One of our temptations is to look back and think of our founding fathers as quaint and picturesque. We tend to think of them as living in the past. But of course, they never thought of themselves as living in the past. They never thought, looking at themselves, aren't we picturesque and quaint in our old-fashioned clothes? They were living in the moment. They were facing significant, overwhelming challenges. None of them had experience in birthing a nation. None of them had ever led an army before or formed state and national government. In fact, they didn't know the ripple effects that their prayers and activity would have. And when they wrote that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, those words were new, captivating, convicting. Words that would garner the mighty energy of the day, birth a nation, bring commitment and sacrifice and dedication. But at the moment, they were stepping out in faith. A nation had never been founded by we, the people before, kings and czars and potentates by all means, but not by we, the people And so no wonder we celebrate these 245 years later. I think they recognized the historical context of the moment. They recognized the opportunity that was before them. They gave thanks for their past, but they were also focused on their future, focused on what was to come My question this morning as we go into this week leading up to the 4th of July is what will our own future be like? What part shall we play in shaping and defining and refining it as we seek to develop a more perfect union? What place will we have? And of course, when we have such thoughts and begin to ask ourselves prayerfully about our future for our children and our grandchildren, we turn to Scripture. And here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, look at it with me again, the Apostle Paul writing and saying to young Timothy, I urge you then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone. 
for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And here is Paul encouraging Timothy and saying, Timothy, guard the wonderful, transforming spiritual heritage that you have been given. Guard it. Build upon it. Expand it. Be praying, not only for yourself and your family, but all whom you love. Be praying for your city, your community, your nation. That's where he's going. Pray for all of those in authority. And so Paul is reminding him of the critical, foundational nature of prayer and especially for those in authority. Why is prayer so important? Well, we know it's important in our own lives. And we never create as Christian people a dichotomy between our private prayer life and our public life. We pray for those who hold public office. We pray for our communities. We pray for our society. We pray for our culture. Trusting that God will lead and guide and direct. And we will be one nation under God. That's the point Paul is making. The Continental Congress in 1787. They had been meeting for five weeks And they had been praying and wrestling with issues relating to drafting a constitution. And quite frankly, historians would tell you that after five weeks they had reached an impasse. They were uncertain where to go next. There was significant disagreement among the delegates. And Benjamin Franklin took to the floor and said these words. He looked back on previous years and he talked about the sacrifice and commitment that was made during the Revolutionary War. And then he said this, Back then, our prayers, sir, were heard and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending province in our favor. And have we now forgot that powerful friend? Or do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? Is it possible? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth Prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. Continental delegates called a local pastor in to pray. 
They went on a three-week recess. They came back after recess, opened the business of the Congress in prayer every day, and in ten weeks produced what we have today as our founding documents. In writing the Constitution, prayer played a significant part. We know it to be true in our own experience. We know it to be true in our national life. And to this day, with a very brief exception, both the House and the Senate open in prayer. Prayer matters. No prayer, no power. No prayer, no growth. No prayer, no God leading, guiding, directing us as a nation. He delights to answer our prayers. Here in Second Timothy, or First Timothy chapter 2 rather, he reminds us of the importance of praying for all of those in authority. And could I suggest this? That when we read that passage, we nod in agreement and we say, of course. But allow me to probe a little, if I may. And allow me to probe as gently and as pastorally as I possibly can. And let me ask, when was the last time you prayed for the president? By name. When was the last time you prayed for our senators, our congressmen, or those leading and guiding and directing political life in Washington? And having challenged you a little, let me go one further step and make you feel a little uncomfortable and allow me to be a little controversial as well. And allow me to continue to ask the questions. And please don't mentally switch off. Please don't say, Richard, I didn't come for controversy this morning. I didn't come to feel uncomfortable. I didn't come to feel upset. But allow me to remind you, please, that whenever we open the Scriptures and unpack them and apply them to our lives, real lives, living in a real world, wrestling with real issues, at times Sunday morning will be uncomfortable as God challenges us and speaks into our lives. And please be patient with me as I continue to make observations and bring questions. And I think most of us would say that or those who observe our national political life would say that the last few years have at times demonstrated a level of animosity and hostility and personal loathing mixed with political expediency is now at an unprecedented level. And it's easy to drift towards animosity. It's easy to move from contrasting views to conflicting views. It's easy to become personally involved. It's easy to move towards animosity and hatred. It's easy to be dismissive of others who don't share our political opinions. 
And so let me encourage you this morning to come to Scripture and remind you again that Scripture calls us to pray for everyone in authority, not just those we support, not just those we like, but those who hold opposing opinions, those whom we disagree with fundamentally. We're called to pray for them. That each one would have a deep, profound dependency on Christ as he leads and guides and directs us nationally. That's the hard work of living out our Christian faith. Of going into areas that make us feel uncomfortable. Resisting hatred and animosity. Refusing to live off the parasitic sins of cynicism and skepticism and despair. It takes courage and determination to do the hard work of living out your faith day by day by day. For praying for those in authority. It is hard work to move from the fatigue of despair to the ebullience of hope. And trust and prayer. It's hard work. God never calls us to an easy task. But He calls us to rise above animosity and hatred. And the hard winter of animosity and discontent. He moves us from that. Giving thanks for the past. Refusing hatred and looking to the future and believing that we are one nation under God prayerfully committed to him and praying for each person in authority that's what we're called to and allow me to be clear what I'm asking I have not and never will ask you to give up deeply held political, cultural, or social opinion. I will never ask you to do that. I have my own. And I value them and treasure them. But what I am asking you to do is this, is to take those deep-seated beliefs, hold on to them, pray about them, but also pray for others who have an alternative opinion, a different view. Pray for those in authority, whether you support them or not. That's what we are called to. Resist turning contrasting views into conflicting views and personal animosity. Our job as Christian people is to say there is another way. There's a way of love and grace and care and prayer. That matters, Franklin told us in the past. And we likewise take that model. Scripture encourages us to do so and move towards the future. And so let me ask, if you and I were having a conversation as we move towards the 4th of July and I asked you, What is the single greatest prayer need of our nation this morning? How would you respond? Would you say, Richard, given the last 14 months, we're still wrestling with a global pandemic? Would you say the greatest need in our nation today is to pray for significant issues relating to health care? 
Would you say, given all that our children and our grandchildren have missed in terms of their education, the greatest need of our nation today relates to education, economy, international trade and international relations? Would it be issues of racial injustice, social justice, employment, retail, finance, medicine, the arts. What is the single greatest need of our nation today? And could I dare suggest this? That the greatest single prayer need of our nation today and any nation across this world is the prayer that we offered earlier. Thy will be done. Is there any greater prayer? Thy will be done in my family. Is that our prayer? Thy will be done for those I love. Thy will be done for my working environment, my neighborhood. Thy will be done for health care and education and international relations and the economy and immigration and social justice issues. Thy will be done is the single greatest prayer we can offer to a sovereign, providential God who leads and directs the affairs of men to his own purpose and will. And that will is a good and pleasing and perfect will. At times it's hard to see it. At times it's filled with tension. At times we do not understand what he's doing. And yet that's what he calls us to, to be submissive and surrender to his rule and reign. Thy will be done as a nation that we might be, as we prayed earlier, a people defined by honesty and transparency and integrity and purity, that together we would intentionally seek to be and be serious in our prayers, one nation under God. Is that our prayer this week? When families come to visit next weekend and gather around the barbecue and enjoy time together, when you are asked to lead in prayer, remember who you're praying for. Your family, your friends, your community, your state, your nation. Thy will be done. And Paul takes us a step further. Not only does he say, pray for kings and all of those in authority, notice what else he adds, that we may live peaceful, quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. What a challenge that is this Sunday. All godliness and holiness. Live out your faith at home among your family. Live out your faith in your neighborhood. Stand for Christian values. Stand firmly but graciously in a godly, peaceful manner. Do so prayerfully. That's who we are. That's what defines us. That's what we're called to. Now, you may be sitting there this morning saying, Richard, I cannot begin to articulate how upset I am with you this morning. 
You're suggesting we do almost nothing. You've challenged everything that I have been thinking over the last few years. What are you doing? Richard, I'm fearful for our future. I don't know where it is going. I am so frustrated. I cannot tell you. And I also want to tell you quite honestly, we have never had it so bad in all of our history as we have at the moment. And I am deeply, profoundly concerned about our future. Never had it so bad. Really? In December 1776, we were living through a national emergency and crisis with just over 3,000 soldiers as a working army. And across the nation, independence was thought to be a lost cause until Christmas Eve and Christmas Day in 1776. Almost a hundred years later, we embarked upon a civil war between 1861 and 1865. Unprecedented casualties took place. War on an industrial scale for the first time took place. We have never had it so bad. Almost a century later, this nation was attacked at Pearl Harbor. Almost, not quite, almost 50% of our Navy lost. We were uncertain, fearful about the future. September 11, 2001. We've never had it so bad. I'm not so sure. Do we have overwhelming issues? The times leave us uncertain, questioning, anxious. Yes, we do. But we still are one nation under God. We are still called to pray for those in authority. We're still called to pray for thy will be done. And in conclusion, what is our final challenge this morning? Number one, live peaceful, quiet lives. But in living those model lives, we live out our faith. And we do so actively, intentionally, praying for all in authority, not simply those we like, those we agree with. But we take a radical Christian stance and pray for all in authority. Number three, we refuse to allow personal conflict, hostility, animosity and hatred to seep into our souls. And we live as Christ would have us live. And fourthly, we pray, Thy will be done. Because today, we remain one nation under God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture this morning. And thank you for its challenge on our lives. Father, enable us, please, as we move into a new week and towards all of the celebrations next weekend of the 4th of July, enable us to be one nation under God. 
prayerfully, carefully, praying for all in authority, refusing to give in to cynicism and skepticism, but living peaceful, godly lives, seeking your purpose and will. And may our prayer this week for ourselves, our families, those we love, our state and our nation, may our prayer indeed be, Thy will be done. Father, bless us please as we seek to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.